0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, My name is Henrietta Moore, and I'm the chair for this evening's discussion and for uh, hopefully the wider discussion which we will have when we ask you to join in from the floor uh, a little bit later on. Um, Now, as you know, this is the relaunch of um, the Centre for the Study of Global Governance, which is being relaunched today as LSE Global Governance. And we have here on the stage the three directors of the centre, David Held, who's the Graham Wallace Professor of Political Science here at the LSE, Mary Caldor, who's the Professor of Global Governance, Danny Quar, who's Professor of Economics, and Professor Lord Anthony Giddens, who's now Emeritus Professor at the the centre at LSE Global Governance, but of course was Director of the LSE. Now before we start, I should just say very, very briefly that what we're going to do is I'm going to ask a number of questions to the directors in turn to get them to talk about uh, what this relaunch means for the LSE, what it means intellectually, what it means of course for the LSE's mission, a rethinking really of the social sciences, which has always been about not just about knowing the causes of things but having some idea about what you should do about it once you've worked out what the causes of those things uh, are. So we'll hear a little bit from each of the directors. Better? Can you hear me better now? Less squeak. Less squeak. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? Less squeak. Much better, Okay. We'll hear a little bit from each of of, of the directors. We'll have a little bit of conversation amongst ourselves about the major issues, and then we are going to turn to you to hear what you think uh, about the thoughts that have being put forward and about what you propose should be done about some of the major challenges. So Mary, can I talk, turn to you first and ask you uh, why this relaunch? Why now? What's in front? How are you going
1: to take us forward? Well, thank you, and it's wonderful to see so many people here, and especially, I want to say, to see my old boss Meghna Desai, who founded the Center in 1992. So I'm really glad that he's here to see this new phase of the Center. Well, I think in the wake of the financial crisis, the growing urgency of climate change, the dire situation in Iraq and Afghanistan, we just felt it was really important to make the case uh, for better global arrangements to counter contemporary challenges our aim, as it has actually always been, is research with practical intent. We want to make a difference. Uh, What we want to do is to address what David, my colleague, calls the paradox of our time, that um, the challenges we face are global, but the means are national, weak, and incomplete. And I think to do that, what we have to be able to do is to make The kind of cognitive leap that enables us to address our current predicament. Um, It means that we have to undertake, we have to start trying to develop new ways of thinking about the world. We have to undertake a very ambitious research program. uh, But more than that, we have to develop new methodologies that go beyond the sort of traditional national silos of research and of academic disciplines. We have to develop new techniques, and I think we are beginning to do that. Just to give you a little example, we're just discussing at the moment how to use crowdsourcing techniques to develop information about civil society worldwide. We're developing a global civil society map where we can upload incidents all over the world and people can ring up on their mobile phone and mm. say hey we taxi drivers held a demonstration in Peking for ex- Beijing mm. for example mm. and then we can tell you how many took place in what part of the world when eventually when we've built it up but this <laughs> is just to give you an example of one of our new methodologies. Mm. Uh, we need to involve partners to build networks of global partners, which we're doing with Beijing, with South Korea, with Thailand, with India, with places in Africa. Um, and we need to engage practitioners and the wider public in what we do. So, these are all the reasons why we decided to give ourselves a new name LSE uh, Global Governance. We're absolutely delighted that Danny Coir has been appointed as a third co-director to join David Held and myself so that we can replace Megnad (laughs) as an economist because it's (laughs) been a gap among us. Uh, We've we've also appointed some brilliant younger scholars to direct our streams of research which include governance and civil society, global governance and civil society, uh, global security, sustainability and prosperity, and culture and communications. So that's really all I'm going to say. David's going to add something about our publications, but there's a lot more to be said. But what we wanted to do today was to focus not on the tools of our trade, but on the substantive content to be addressed. What are the issues that underlie our research agenda? And so we've written, the three of us, this pamphlet which we've called the Hydra-headed crisis, and we will explain what that means. Great. Yes.
2: Great. Well, I'll just add just something on, on our sort of communication strategy. I mean, most of us share one thing in common: that we, we didn't come into academic life just to write for academic journals and the 15, the 20 specialists you find in academic reading academic journals. This is, of course, what we are evaluated in relation to: what journals we publish in, and so on. But we've always taken the view, as Meghnad did before us, that we should communicate at different levels, of course, in academic journals and academic books, but also more broadly. So right from the beginning, the Center has innovated. It produced the Global Civil Society Yearbook, which is published every year, which is probably the authoritative source in the development of global civil society. We will publish a range of pamphlets now on most of the pressing global issues. And we have just launched, uh, very proudly, uh, a new journal called uh, Global Policy. I have a copy here, so I can just hold it up here. This is an extremely ambitious project uh, to link um, uh, academia and practitioners across the world, not just to reflect the discourse of the West in how we think of academic global challenges, the nature of those challenges, but to engage academics and practitioners across the world. And it has a number of sections because it's modeled on nature, which is both theoretical and also practitioner. Driven. So that is global policy. If you're really interested, you can go to globalpolicyjournaloneword.com and be wowed. That's all I wanted to say on this matter. Okay,
0: wow then. Wow, okay. Well, I mean, I think this, one of the most exciting things about what's happening in the centre now is that it is, as I said, part of a kind of renewal of the LSE mission. The LSE's always been interested in public policy, it's always been in the forefront of reaching out in all kinds of ways. But now I think that the social sciences has arrived at a kind of new moment with new forms of collaboration between the academy and practitioners uh, and, and civil society. Uh, and I think the kind of uh, new model that you were talking about, Mary, for data collection, that which was, of course, one of the things that was very, very successful after the violence following the Kenyan elections, mm-hmm. um, with that kind of power. We're also.
1: actually using the... The de- yes, technology. technology, exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly, and I think these, these are all wonderful new initiatives that are that, that are taking place. So it's easy then, David, to feel that we're li- living in a time of crisis. We've had a financial crisis. We've had this terrible catastrophe in Haiti. We've had many others that, that we know about. So I'm turning to you now to say, well, what are the major challenges that we face now? Social sciences. We we live in in the pressures of a of a multipolar world, um, and. Um, we've got various kinds of fault lines that are appearing in our governing institutions. And so how do you see that working now?
2: Well, in, in the few minutes I have, let me just highlight some. I think we are at a moment of considerable intellectual interest, but also political engagement. And also at a very pressing moment, for reasons I will explain. I think we face a number of tests, that is to say the national and regional EU and global communities, not just in the future, but actually now. And I'd just like to highlight three or four. The first is whether we can come together and produce a successful resolution to the Doha trade round, or whether the multilateral order of trade will essentially fragment into bilateral and preferential trading agreements, which looks like to be the case. Secondly, there is the test of financial regulation whether we can renew financial market regulation in such a way as to stem and prevent the development of another major financial crisis, perhaps worse, in a few years years down the road. At the moment, again, the evidence doesn't look encouraging. Thirdly, I would mention the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty up for renewal this year. Do we live in a world where we can stem nuclear proliferation or is the world essentially proliferated the grounds for optimism about the renewal of the nuclear non-proliferation treaty don't look good. And fourthly, I would mention, of course, climate change, which Tony Giddens will come back to later. We've just had Copenhagen, and there at best, it's a best a very mixed story, but at worst quite a dark story as well. Now, in all these three areas, we have the opportunity to bring new voices and partners across the world together to reforge the multilateral order or we can see in each of these areas its potential fragmentation. I think these tests sit on an iceberg of issues, an iceberg of three kinds of issues that we face. Issues to do with our global commons, climate change, biodiversity issues, water deficits, issues concerned with human life chances, um, inequality, global poverty, global infectious diseases, conflict prevention, and issues concerned with our rule books, trade rules, financial market rules, tax rules, genetic research rules, and so on. In each of these areas, nation states alone can no longer produce coherent, feasible, and effective (laughs) solutions. For example, if the UK is highly innovative and produces very effective regulations to manage genetic research, it doesn't matter a jot in the long run for the human genome project and for genetic engineering if other countries bypass those rules and do what they're going to do. In other words, in many, many areas, you either have a broadly-based coherent set of rules or you risk those rules being (coughs) eroded by other competitive parties and so on. In each of these areas, nation-states alone cannot deliver the goods. And yet the one thing we have to accept is that nation-states acting together have a pretty mixed record and, at best, a pretty bad record. And the more urgent the issue, often the the greater the difficulty of finding common voice. I think behind this now lies a particular set of structural issues, and I'll stop my opening remarks, and this can basically be summed up as the 1945 multilateral order being no longer in crude sense fit for purpose. It was created at a time after the Second World War by the victors of the Second World War whose power was embedded in the 1945 settlement and in the institutions, the Bretton Woods institutions that followed. But the world has changed very dramatically. It's not just a world that we call a global world, driven by forces of economic forces of globalization. But there's been changes in the balance of power across the world. The U.S. hegemonic reach is not as great as it was. We see that in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. The world at the economic level is certainly becoming more multipolar. The EU was more coherent, faced with a Cold War threat, than it is today. It no longer speaks with you know, singularity and a clear necessary common purpose. So we live in a much more complicated world order where the 1945 settlement is no longer representative of the changes balance of power across the world, no longer, certainly it does not have the means, the collective and the financial means to address urgent global goods and global bads. So that is at least, I think, more or less where we are. That is not to say, I would say briefly, that global governance doesn't work in many places, it does. The more technical the issue, for example, bank transfers or international rescue missions and so on, the more technical the issues, the greater the common agreement. But the more you get into distributive questions where resources are at stake and power is at stake, the less effective we find our institutions.
0: Well, okay, thank you. Well, I think we should come back to that question at the moment of the intersection between national interests and global public goods, which I think may be at the heart of a lot of what we want to discuss tonight. But before we get to that, can I turn to you, Mary, and say David's talked about several things. We've got economic <coughs> problems, we've got environmental problems, we've got security problems. Um, but aside from seeing this as a story about a, a, a failure of institutions, what other kinds of things? Connect all of these sorts of things? I mean, is there something here that we can make a picture that makes sense in a way? Well, that's really
1: why we decided to call this pamphlet The Hydra Headed uh, Crisis. Hmm. Because every week we seem to have a new crisis. Last week it was Haiti, this week it's Greece, every week it's Afghanistan. Hmm. <coughs> um, hmm. And one obvious connection is simply communication. We're more aware of crises in different parts of the world than ever before. We're, it's because of television, it's because of internet, uh, but it's also because of travel. It's because people in different places have friends and families in the areas where there are crises. But what we wanted to say in this pamphlet was that we think there's more to that, more to this than just communication, there is a deeper connection of which communication is a part. And that deeper connection is in a way reiterating what David said, but in a slightly different language. That we've seen in the last decades profound economic, social, cultural transformations. And yet our political institutions are still very much shaped by the mid-20th century consensus. Uh, And what we've tried to do in this pamphlet is to spell this out in relation to the economic crisis, what we call the security crisis and the environmental. And let me just say briefly what I mean by each. Um, What we've argued is the financial crisis is not just about um, excessive risk taking and weak regulation, even though that is incredibly important underlying the financial crisis is a more profound structural economic crisis. And (coughs) fundamentally, saying it in a very brief way, and I hope Danny will say more, it's about the fact that the dollar remains the international reserve currency, despite the fact that the American model of (coughs) energy-intensive mass production for consumption and military purposes is becoming exhausted and despite the fact that economic power is shifting eastwards. The consequence is that because of its particular position as a reserve dollar the US can maintain huge deficits both in its government budget and externally and still get away with huge borrowing because the dollar is a reserve currency and the result is it's sucking in capital From the rest of the world Um, because the rest of the world is subject to much tighter (laughs) discipline and the result is and and that's also one of the reasons why the financial crisis because it's limited productive opportunities it means that people those whose job it is to make profits have to seek new innovative ways of making profit so what so if we turn to the second dimension of all of this. What's the security element of all this? Well, a, po- that a key point is that high levels of military spending were supposed to mm-hmm. underpin US military power, which in turn underpins, helps to underpin the role of the dollar. But, first of all, high military spending has contributed to the deficit, and yet at the same time it has not contributed to security, as we are seeing in Iraq and Afghanistan. What I call new wars have developed in countries where, typically, where authoritarian regimes were subject to liberalization. And the result was not democracy, but anarchy. Um, And in those situations, as became evident in Iraq and Afghanistan, conventional military forces can't bring security. Actually, they make things worse. So what we're seeing is what I call a security gap, large parts of the world where people feel more and more insecure, they risk being killed, being raped, being kidnapped, Uh, they lack access to food, water, healthcare, they're vulnerable to natural disasters, Um, and yet military forces are quite inappropriate for that kind of insecurity. And what happens instead is that new actors fill that gap. Mercenaries, pirates, warlords, militias. And we've got growing areas of insecurity in the world. East Africa, um, Central Asia, the Caucasus. So then finally, what about the environmental dimension? Well, on the one hand we can say it's the consequence of the energy-intensive model, both of development and of security, because military forces are incredibly energy-intensive, conventional military forces. On the other hand, it's the poorest, most underdeveloped countries, the most insecure areas, as we saw in Haiti, which are most vulnerable to the kind of natural shocks we can expect as a result of climate change. And the problem is, again, a similar problem, governments simply can't get their act together, and I'm sh- I know that Tony Giddens will talk much more about that, to address climate change because of the short-term national nature of their political constituencies. So basically, those are that's setting out broadly how we see the connection, and I guess our research agenda is how to address this manifold, how, this modest Research agenda. <laughs> it's hard to address this
0: um, hydra-headed crisis. Well, well, could I just come back to you a little bit on, on the question of military spending and security, which is yeah. <clears throat> obviously a hugely important issue. Military spending is still rising. I think the figure you gave in your pamphlet was something like 1.6 trillion dollars. Yeah. So that—that's in excess of the GDP of every country in Africa put together. Right and yet we don't have a sense that, as you say, that security is improving. And I'm wondering, you know, how will we, can we, can any of us actually persuade any of these governments to stop spending money on...
1: Well, the interesting thing is that most governments, at least... Well, even Russian and Chinese are facing huge dilemmas precisely because it doesn't bring security. What Mm. they like spending money on is missiles, aircraft carriers, advanced combat aircraft. Mm -hmm. And they become more and more expensive and less and less useful. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the American budget or our budget, they command about half the budget. Meanwhile, manpower is declining. The reason the Americans have so many private security contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan is because manpower has been declining. And what is being realised inside ministries of defence is that we face a choice. Either we want to be able to do missions which actually address people's security (coughs) in Africa or Afghanistan, or we go on spending on these hugely expensive weapon systems. And in the case of a country like Britain, it is a real crisis, actually. We really do face the choice. Are we going to continue to buy Trident... Or are we going to continue to be able to send troops? We're actually quite good at protecting people. Mm. Um, we're actually quite good at doing peacekeeping. And I, if you ask me, if you ask what does British clout come from, it's not from having nuclear weapons, it's from being good at peacekeeping. But we can't, won't be able to afford it in the future if we continue to buy <coughs> Trident submarines. So there is a sort of real crisis mm-hmm. going on. And I think our job as thinkers and academics is saying these are the other ways you can do things.
0: Okay, good, yeah, so new, new approaches, new models, new yeah. ways of thinking about things, new forms of, 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 of collaboration. So Danny, can I turn to you now then and, and talk a little bit about economics. I mean, there's a lot of discussion at the moment about the rise of India and China, the idea that in a sense the, the balance of power is shifting eastwards. Um, but I think one of the questions we all want to know is, is is the balance of power really shifting eastwards economically? I mean, is this just on the back of an increasing middle class with an interest in consumption? Uh, where will new forms of value be created? How will this productivity growth take, take, take place? Um, you know, as Mary said earlier, the, the US dollar is still the reserve <laughs> currency. Um, military, military might is definitely in the hands of the Americans at the moment, whether they're using it well or badly. Uh, so how do you, how do you see these new trends really working?
3: Um, thank you Henrietta the, <coughs> the question of this shift of economic power to the east is something I want to, to speak about in some concrete detail later on, but I want to be clear right up front that it's going to be something that connects up to other parts of our conversation, uh, in particular the f- global financial crisis. Uh, Mary has already started to trace out how this shift of this potential to power to the east is something that will link back to our understanding of the U.S. in the global economy and the seeds of the 2008 global financial crisis. Before I begin on that, however, I want to remark how writing this booklet between the three of us uh, 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 already you see the balance of power between the co-directors <laughs> <laughs> <And> it's shifting the <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yes.
2: laughs> <laughs> technique indeed, isn't quite right that's and, the words indeed, are
3: perfect you, you might have already noticed that when I started to talk about this booklet that we wrote together we, we wrote this over tens of thousands of kilometers separated across different time zones <laughs> and it was the first time I had started to do something really rigorous and systematic and concrete with my fellow co directors, with whom I had agreed to be part of in this center. And honestly, the things you find out about people after you've agreed to work with them. <laughs> <laughs> we, Tell dis- us more. <laughs> we discovered how much we agreed on some very big issues and on some very small issues. And I'm, but I'm pleased to say that the booklet has come up the way it has. <laughs> And then even this evening, I'm discovering new things about my co-directors. For instance, Mary has referred to how I might be viewed as a replacement for (laughs) (laughs) Magnet. And if I were Magnet in this audience, I would have two thoughts, at least, running through my head. One is, if that Qua fellow thinks he's going to replace me, (laughs) he's got a shock Uh coming. First of all, he's got to improve his dress sense. <laughs> and second, he's got to do something about that hair. <laughs> well, the that's s- true. <laughs> <laughs> The second thought must be, why does it take the three of you to replace one of me? <laughs> 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 but I think that is Over one the of head the, head. the reasons <laughs> that the three of us, together with Tony Giddens and Henrietta, up here on stage. <laughs> because we want to talk about the breaking down of barriers, intellectual barriers, and indeed trade barriers across academic disciplines and across ways of thinking in the social sciences. And one of the things that the three of us together have been trying to do in thinking through the work of this center, the work of this global center, is what exactly it means to break down those intellectual silos. The key traction point for us that's already come out in David's remarks and Mary's remarks and in the booklet is that the world, the global economy today struggles with the historical legacy from the Bretton Woods institutions. It's a historical, political, and institutional legacy that is very difficult to shift. And it is far slower moving in character than the actual shift in global economic power and the shift in economic activity. Now, I'm far from the first to notice, point out, and try and document this shift of economic power to the East. As Henrietta has said, this is something that people talk about. How concrete is it exactly? How substantive, how real? So long before this <coughs> evening's discussion, part of this evening's discussion that has to do with this shift, Jim O'Neill at Goldman Sachs had talked about the rise of the BRICS. Jim Rogers, who co-founded Quantum, together with George Soros, has already in recent years picked up from his mansion, 6 million pound mansion in Manhattan, and transplanted his entire activity out east to Singapore, and he has made his daughter learn Mandarin, because that, for him, putting his money where his mouth is, is the wave of the future. The group CEO of HBC has recently moved from New York to London, and then again to Hong Kong. Journalists like Farid Zakaria, the editor of Newsweek International, policy observers and diplomats like Kisho Mabubani, the current dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, have all talked about this shift to the East. And for those of us at the LSE who are of a skeptical nature, it is very easy to try and come up with facts and observations to refute that there is indeed this shift of economic power to the East. After all, the United States remains 25% of the global economy through thick and thin, through the last 50 years, through upturns and downturns. It has always been that. It's still the United States that runs the Internet. It is still the United States that runs Facebook, which I know some of you in the back of the auditorium are even now looking at. (laughs) (laughs) It is still the United States that runs Twitter servers. And again, some of you will, I hope, be already tweeting about what we're saying, what we're talking about here. The United States is still the world's repository of soft power. It holds the leading corporate brands in the world. Its average income is still 15 times, between 15 and 20 times the average income of most of the East. It is, for many of us, still the technology leader. How could there be a shift of economic activity away from the United States, away from the West, and towards the East? Well, there are a number of ways to see this. I want to point this out and then lead into discussion of the global economic crisis, and then hand over to my fellow co-panelists. The first thing is to do something relatively mechanical. Now, as an economist, as an econometrician, that's actually relatively easy for me to do. It's in my nature to do things that are mechanical. So you can think about the map of economic activity that's observable from outer space. Those are the only kinds of things that matter when you come to talking about the shift in the distribution of economic activity. So when you go to Google Earth, you can actually map out 700 or so locations on Earth, on the planet, where you can measure discernible economic activity. And then you can mechanically, after after measuring economic activity through income or through production or some other way across these 700 places. You can mechanically calculate the world's economic center of gravity. Now, this is something that everyone talks about. Everyone talks about how there's a shift in HSBC's activities. There's a shift in investors. (coughs) There's a shift in journalistic and diplomatic activity. Well, you can actually make concrete that shift as Henrietta is insisting that we might do. And when you do that, you find that in the mid-70s, the world's economic center of gravity was mid-Atlantic. It was west of London, to no one's surprise. The United States and Western Europe, between them, accounted for 50% of global economic activity, and then there was Japan. But aside from these three areas, it was basically empty, dark space relative to the things that you can observe from satellites encircling planet Earth. So the world's center of gravity in the mid-70s was mid Atlantic. Now here's the interesting thing. Following your mechanical following this mechanical procedure, following your nose, track the world's economic centre of gravity over time. And you will notice that in the last three decades, that economic centre of gravity has drilled two thousand kilometers, one third of the Earth's radius eastwards. It has zoomed well past London, it is zooming Hmm. past Moscow as we speak, and it is heading well it is heading east is heading towards economic production and financial centers in Beijing, Shanghai, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, even Japan. That is a very concrete depiction (coughs) of this shift in the world's economic center of gravity. But you don't have to be satisfied with that. You can think about where the next generation of consumers is coming from. East Asia has in the last 30 years over the same time period, lifted over 600 million people out of extreme poverty, more than the entire world has done. As far as meeting the Millennium Development Goals of poverty reduction, East Asia is basically the entire story. Very soon, this entire cohort of over 600 million consumers is going to be hitting middle income, and they're going to be consuming and demanding the same patterns of consumption that most of us currently already do. The shift in consumption, the shift in demand, the shift for, for production that must occur is massive. China, East Asia, is already showing that. China last year became the world's dominant producer of clean energy wind turbines. <clears throat> Two years before that, China became the world's largest producer of clean energy solar panels. The view that the United States is the world's (coughs) technology leader in probably the leading edge technology that is most important for the world, the view that the United States remains that—is currently under challenge by the demands of these rising incomes and these people coming out of poverty. (coughs) When you do these same kinds of calculations, as I hope I will get to expand on, I know I'm running out of time, when you look at what happens over global economic downturns, China and India more than carry the weight in pulling along the world's economic, world's economic growth. China and India more than carry the weight in driving world economic growth even during normal times. China and India and the rest of East Asia have been able to provide the capital that the United States has sucked in over the last 15 years to, the, to a point where in the mid-2000s, the United States was consuming more than it was producing 7% of its GDP more than the entire GDP of India. Where was this capital coming from? There was finance in this. Well, it was coming from East Asia. Now, there are a number of additional facts that we might get into that I hope you will challenge as we go through our conversation. But I've tried to give you a flavor of what it means to be characterizing the shift in global economic activity, the shift in global economic power. And it's setting up all kinds of tensions. As David has said, We live in a world, in a global society, in a global polity, where global policy making in the economic realm comes from an inherited Bretton Woods institutions that have entirely failed to keep track of these changes in global economic activity. What we do going forwards is exactly what David refers to as the paradox of our time. How do we manage the global commons, the global economy, when our institutions seem grotesquely incapable of keeping up with real-world changes in economic activity.
0: Thank you, Danny, very much. Well, I think we'll come back to that several points that that, that you've raised there, including, I think, the the difficulty of actually getting any change in the trade rules, which is, of course, part of the the issue about whether this shift is really occurring. But before we do that and have an, an open discussion, I would like to turn to Tony and ask you, Tony, about... The crisis that's all on our minds at the moment which is the crisis of climate change and indeed the fact that we seem to make so little progress on changing climate or agreeing any of the reductions in emissions and so on particularly in the, in the most disappointing case recently which was uh copenhagen and i think it's very difficult for, for all of us um who've not spent as much time as you have looking at these things to think about or not to see Copenhagen as an act of very very bad faith on the part of those who really do hold the reins of power in this area, which is the United States in part. Ah, well, thank
4: you. Let me Mm -hmm. just say uh, what a pleasure it is for me to be back at the LSE, indeed, uh, back in the old theatre. And I'd also like to pay tribute to Meghdad Desai for not only having founded the centre, but for all the fantastic things he's done from the L- for the LSE and um, continues to do so. And uh, I'd like to congratulate David and Mary because they built on the foundation that Megnad set out, and I think they've made a really dramatic success of the centre, and that's the reason why they've been able to move to a higher plane, as it were, with this um, relaunch which I'm happy to be part of, and very pleased that Danny and Henrietta are also involved, and you know, as they get to discover more about each other, I hope that they'll all be happy.
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> I found it a bit worrying the way that you know, it's a bit like a marriage the way Danny was describing it. So, <laughs>
5: you
4: have got to be a bit careful. Well, I see all these things as Henrietta was saying through the prism of climate change, because that's what I've been devoted almost, almost all my activities to for the last. Um, years or so. I think the situation in the world is in a way quite simple. Over the past 20 or 30 years, there's been a massive increase in interdependence, however you measure it. We live in a vastly more interdependent world than any generation has ever done before, and that interdependence is still accelerating. However, it has not been accompanied by effective instruments of, of global governance to cope effectively with the consequences of that interdependence and we are struggling to find an adjustment at the moment and this struggle I think appears in all the areas which we're uh, talking about um, I was trying to find some good jokes to tell you about climate change but you know it's too serious and so no jokes about climate change I only found one which you may have heard There's, you know, two planets talking to one another and the first planet says to the second planet I don't feel very well I've got homo sapiens
0: <laughs> <laughs> the, second,
4: the second planet says to the first one Oh, don't worry, that doesn't last very long. <laughs> well, uh,
0: <laughs> you know, follow,
4: following Copenhagen, this could be said to be the situation which we're in. And I think Copenhagen is an appropriate mirror, actually, of all that's been discussed so far by the previous three speakers. You look at what happened in Copenhagen, whichever way you look at it, it was a fiasco. I mean. I was, never, I was never a strong adherent of Kyoto style bargaining. I never thought that Copenhagen would produce systematic results uh, of the kind we need to be able to control climate change because it was always going to be difficult to get 192 nations to agree to anything substantial. Kyoto took years to unfold and hasn't really made any significant impact actually on rising global emissions. So I always thought we needed something different. Nevertheless, I didn't quite expect the, the fiasco that, that happened. And my main point would be that the, the, you know, this fiasco reflects the very strains in the global system, which have been discussed if I go through them quickly. First of all, the weakness of the United Nations. The United Nations provided the framework for Copenhagen. The UN is pretty good at advancing causes got a lot of good uh, agencies which do that. It has advanced the cause of climate change consciousness, even given the criticisms more recently made of the intergovernmental panel on climate change, the IPCC, But the United Nations is paralyzed in terms of decision making. And that was very evident um, at Copenhagen. If you're trying to get a consensus between a large number of nations in which there is no formal majority voting. Extremely difficult to do that. And the effect of Copenhagen, I'm afraid, has been, in my view, to further weaken the United Nations because the UN, I think, will no longer be the main fulcrum of further global climate change policy. The <coughs> second very visible thing, Copenhagen, also significant you know, for world politics, the marginalizing of the EU which was quite amazing. The EU came to Copenhagen is seeing itself as in the vanguard of climate change policy. And indeed it was because the EU stepped into the vacuum produced by uh, the eight years of government of George Bush and the EU uh, introduced climate change policy ahead of any other sector, really, of states in the world. But it was completely marginalised. It wasn't involved in that. Creation of the Copenhagen Accord, the outcome of the meetings. What was the reason? Well, it just seems to me the traditional impotence of the EU that is, you don't know who speaks for the EU, no one can take authoritative decisions, especially in a pressurized situation like Copenhagen. And the result of the Lisbon Treaty has actually meant that, you know, it was supposed to improve the leadership capacity of the EU, the EU's now got more leaders than it ever before. You've got like four leaders, no one knows who to turn to. <laughs> those people, see, that's a very, it's a very serious thing, for the EU, I think. The Constitution, Lisbon Treaty, was supposed to transform the EU into a, an active uh, element in global politics. It, it looks as though it's actually helped to undermine that position. And that applies to other things in which the EU is involved. Third, Copenhagen showed... Um, the dominance of domestic politics in the U.S. over international politics. Um, President Obama was unable to get any leverage much coming to Copenhagen because he had nothing to offer. Um, What happened in the U.S. is, first of all, climate change has unfortunately become very strongly polarized between left and right. Very unfortunate thing, in my opinion, since it's not a left-right issue at all. And President Obama's uh, domestic agenda initially founded on trying to get the health care bill through Congress actually means that there may not be any uh, climate change bill at all which passes through the American Congress. So the American position was very weak in Copenhagen, and that, of course, didn't pass the other countries by. Fourthly, you had these tremendous divisions, really, between the developing world and the developed nations, very acute in Copenhagen. You also had pretty big divisions within both of those categories of nations. You have a fractured world community here. You do not have a world community. You have a fractured world with, with every side kind of pushing their own uh, uh, interests and, and not thinking of the overall outcome. I would stress that you're dealing here with possibly the most uh, cataclysmic future which humanity faces. You shouldn't I think, be too swayed by the attack on, the, on climate change science, which, in my view, has shown nothing of significance. These are the biggest risks, probably, we face in the 21st century, especially where they converge with nuclear proliferation. What is the world doing? Virtually nothing as a result of Copenhagen meetings directly. Fifthly, you, know, you have the ambiguous role of China. It's certainly right to say you know, power is shifting eastwards. Everybody can see that problematic, difficult though it is to measure, as Danny has said, but I'm not sure that China is really ready f- for the role which it now is, is more or less being forced to assume as an agent within the overall system of international relations. It doesn't really have, a, I think, a full mat- multilateralist position, wants to sustain a fairly traditional notion of sovereignty, a fairly strict notion of sovereignty, in an interdependent world where those two things don't really match. You know, people used to complain when the United States ran the world. They're going to complain even more if power shifts too much towards China without an equivalent uh, network perception of our interdependence. And I think the struggle around Google is a pretty good example of that, but only one example of that. Um, The outcome so far as climate change uh, problems... uh, so far as those problems that we face now, what, what's likely to be the outcome, probably better to leave to discuss with Henrietta, but um, we, I think we're at the verge of, of as big a transition in our economy, and our, well, a bigger transition in our economy and society than, than was true of the Industrial Revolution. We are on the edge of a new world here, I think. Because our industrial civilization is unsustainable, it's coming up against the limits of its possibilities that means you must have an alternative model of development at some point soon for China, India and the large developing countries we suffer in a way from overdevelopment in the, in the so called developed uh, societies there's a tremendous job to be done here I didn't, I didn't feel myself um, at all pessimistic or not too pessimistic as a result of Copenhagen because there are other driving transformative forces which overlap quite a lot with the climate change agenda the main one is energy security, and when you look at what Danny was saying about huge Chinese investment in renewable energy and nuclear energy, um, plans for um, closing down many traditional coal fired power stations, replacing them with with new uh, energy technologies, um, you know China now commands about twenty percent of total global r and d up up from about three percent only about twenty years ago. see you're going to have a big driving force of energy security, which if we can get our act right, quite a lot of that could overlap with um, what we have to do, which is bring the rate of emissions of greenhouse gases down, bring it down fairly sharply and bring it down fairly soon.
0: Thank you, Tony. Well, a very, very acute analysis, but the crisis of leadership that you describe seems to me to be a serious problem. I mean, in this booklet that the three directors have written, there's an extraordinary fact that the, the state of New York has a larger carbon footprint than the 766 million people that live in the least 50 developed countries in the world, and there seems to be absolutely no appetite for doing anything about this on the side of the Americans. Um, no, David, if there is this crisis... Well, can I just comment yes, on that? Do. Because
4: that's that not true, I think. Oh,
0: good. Where, oh,
2: good. Well, what, the, what the fact or the well, what is
4: No, what is the case? This is comment about America. And what is the case is you're only going to get weak leadership, probably at the federal level. But the United States is a very diverse society. You have all sorts of groups operating at state level, um, below the national level. You have figures like Arnold Schwarzenegger with his R20 organisation. You have some 365 cities in the United States all becoming transition cities towards low carbon economy. You have plenty of connections being forged actually at Copenhagen uh, between subnational (coughs) groups from India, China, United States, very interesting outcome. You can drive quite a lot from the the area of civil society, which Mary talked about previously. So what what we need is a lot of innovation on the level of international (coughs) relations which I think climate change can to some degree be a driving force, not just an expression, as perhaps my short talk indicated, but a driving force for transformation too. And, you know, we've got to be innovative. And I think technological innovation is going to be perhaps less important in controlling global greenhouse emissions than social, economic, uh, and innovation at the level of international relations. Mm. So here's a task (coughs) for the centre for global government. Exactly.
0: Well, well, Tony, anticipation, because I was just about to use that to segue back to David and ask about democracy and the role of democracy in actually ensuring some of these changes coming through people power.
2: yeah. Well, I think it's very interesting, and it cannot be an accident, and must be a Freudian slip, but that a key word is missing from the title here. The 21st century, how the global crisis has the opportunity to transform the... Because, because that is where we would all disagree. <laughs> we agree about the first part, but it must be absolutely deliberate. Was that a deliberate slip on that? I, I, we must have. Uh, I, I, I suspect it, it, it was not a deliberate slip, <laughs> but let's let's leave that aside. I mean, let's start with democracy then then Henrietta your question. I mean, democracy is part of the answer and part of the problem. To me, democracy was this extraordinary thing that was invented. Let's leave aside antiquity for a moment. This extraordinary thing that was invented in the late uh, uh, in the 17th century comes to fruition now. But what does it do? it creates a replacement for princes and princesses, but it creates a new breed, or let's call them democratic princes and princesses. That is leaders who are accountable to specific electorates with the task of protecting their interests. Mm. So democracy creates new waves of accountability, significant as it is, but binds leaders into short-term politics, the electoral cycle, the politics of the median floating voter, and to a vision tied to borders. So whilst democracy is part of this extraordinary wave of emancipatory politics, it's also part of the problem because it binds leaders to particular constituencies and national territories in an age in which, in the moment in which, problems have shifted, some of them at least, from the national territory Mm -hmm. into this global shift we have been describing. So what is the solution? Well, in the last 30 years, many have argued, Thatch and Reagan, that markets are the solution. We now look upon this market fundamentalism as a parody of itself. Clearly, markets create massive externalities that require political regulation. We know that club models are not very successful. Club models between leading states... At determining fair and reasonable outcomes, because it was, after all, the tight club of the leading 1945 settlements that drove the IMF, the World Bank, the Basel Committee, and so on, and built a risk model for financial regulation that externalized the risk across the world, but in their own immediate in- economic interests. So, non-democracy at the global level doesn't work very well either. Club models don't very work either. But that leaves the question: Can you have a more representative and effective mechanism of global governance. Well, we wouldn't call a modern state a modern state if it didn't pass two tests. It had to somehow have an impartial system of representation. Mm-hmm. And it has to have some means of financial generation that doesn't pretend p- depend on donor donations from the rich. Mm. But that's exactly what we have at the global level. Mm. A system of representation that locks in the powerful and a system of flow of resources that depends on donations from the rich. So global governance has to become more representative. The old order is breaking down. And here we see germs of interesting development. It took the global financial crisis to create a shift in the distribution of power without which it it seems to be highly unlikely. The death, as it were, of the politics alone of the G1, the uh, the, uh, increasing anachronistic position of the G5, 6, 7, and 8, and the emergence of the G20, with the G2, China and the United States in a more prominent position. This is producing shifts in global governance and shifts in the discourse of global governance, the nature of representation, which creates some promising avenues for development. The problem is, of course, is the G2 is an informal structure. It has no permanent secretariat. It has no institutional basis. But at least, it seems to me, potentially a vehicle for building on some of the strengths of small membership, but also attending to the wider pressing issues of adequate representativeness. I'll stop there.
4: Well, whichever way you look at it, we're going to need some of these things, because you must have a G2 in climate change, for example. Um, China and the U.S. produce over 40% total greenhouse gas emission. So even if all the other countries of the world got together and reduced their greenhouse gas emissions will make much difference, so the rest of the world should encourage China and the U.S. to work together specifically on that kind of issue, on issues of technological innovation. It ain't going to be easy. I think it's going to be a difficult relationship, but I do feel we also need a G3, so you know, I want the EU to get its act together. I think the EU should uh, try to have a single representative who will represent it on climate change and should have authority to take at least some sorts of binding decisions to do that because um, the EU um, not only has done a lot in the area of climate change, but also produces a very high proportion of emissions. Only you know, only about seven or eight states produce another like 80% of total greenhouse gas emissions. You want the big polluters to work together, but you've got to somehow find a mechanism protecting the interests of smaller countries and poorer countries. That ain't going to be easy. And you've got to somehow... You know, coordinate all this, it, which in the end draws you back to the UN. The UN is going to have to have some kind of role, but it won't be quite as dominant as before. G20 is going to have significant role in climate change, and could be the source of mobilising some of the money, especially if a Tobin tax does come to be a reality, which looks closer than it ever did for the past twenty or so years, anyway.
0: Hmm. Well, just before we open it up to the floor, Danny, Danny looks uh, like he's here. I think Danny needs to come back in
3: here a little bit. Well, the, I'm, I'm wondering about the, the path that we're going down. Um, we've got already up on stage a view that says that the United States should not be viewed as a single polity, that there are pockets of, of disagreement within the United States on how you want to run technology, clean technologies, how you run your city. It is difficult for me to translate that to an international stage where we're then trying to unify not just 350 million people, but 1.5 billion people or 3 billion people if we just take the top fraction of our top whatever fraction of economic activity, population, and so on. I still believe in markets, and although, as, as David says, market fundamentalism has turned out to be a, a hollow, hollow mockery has made a hollow mockery of itself. It has done market fundamentalism has done very well at producing outcomes in many different arenas of our lives. No one's ever complained about the market for umbrellas. No one's ever complained about the market for restaurant meals or for going out. The market mechanism works very well, at producing outcomes that satisfy our needs. Given the right circumstances, given the right regulatory mechanisms, and I would still go with the market mechanism, even for these, cu- for, for many global questions, for global questions <laughs> on climate change, on economic regulation, or regulation of economic activity.
4: Well, yeah. I mean, so would I, because you know only markets <laughs> provide the kind of creativity and innovation that we're going to need for new technologies. So. You know, that have to be the case, but you've got to find a new relationship, obviously, I think, between government and markets which allow markets to think long term, because we now have to think on a 20, 30 year planning cycle. We know that traditional authoritarianism didn't work for that. We know that market fundamentalism <coughs> didn't work, so we've got to pioneer something new. And, you know, it's going to be a new, more sophisticated relationship. I, I think there's a real
1: problem which is that markets always operate within a regulatory framework. And what we're really saying is that at the moment, our regulatory framework, even with a lot of deregulation, is supporting the vested interests of the old model. I actually happen to think that once we start moving towards a low-carbon economy, we will discover that there are huge productive possibilities, and the market is already rushing into those areas. But I think along with that change of regulation has to go a a change of political will. Um, And it seems to me what's really important is not just the formal structures of democracy, but also those informal processes through which people push new ideas. I mean, if you think about how climate change has got on the agenda, it has not got on the agenda because any particular... It's not because Al Gore became President of the United States, for instance. It's not because climate change advocates became important politicians. Quite the opposite. It's because there was a growing global discussion, debate, pressure. And if I think about... Copenhagen. It seems to me there was a success of Copenhagen, but it was actually a success before it began, namely that it mobilized a lot of public ideas and discourses. The same, I would argue, is about President Obama. Actually, Obama's success was winning and mobilizing all those people to help him win, which produced local change throughout the United States. So I think... If we're really gonna push towards a different world which deals with security, which deals with a low-carbon economy, which deals with uh, equality and poverty, part of it is gonna be pushed, pulled, most of it will be the consequence of what people do in their own ways. Uh, And the question is how do we break down the barriers that exist today, these deep structural barriers that exist at national level that prevent those people from pushing in those positive,
0: constructive ways Yes, so come back, sustained economic growth is going to be a challenge for very many parts of the world, Mary, so David last point before we open to the floor
2: Yeah, I'd just like to dis- <coughs> you know, disagree with Tony and Danny really, I mean they discard market fundamentalism but then re-emphasise the key question is how to harness the power of markets but I, I think while that is, of course true, I think it's the, not the big question. I mean, what we clearly have I think the, what, to put the point differently, I think the real 21st- century question, as it were, is how you balance markets' self-determination and universal standards. because we all accept that markets have this incredibly inventive dynamic quality that you have emphasized. We all accept that self-determination and the values of self-determination are crucial to governance and to the nature of responsive governance and yet universal standards are of critical importance too because self-determination left to its own devices and the states left to their own devices are capable of the most extraordinary atrocities. So universal standards like the human rights regime, the ICC, sustainability standards and so on are critical. So the real issue, the political issue, which no one has solved and which all you students here will have to solve going forward is how can you have the advantages of dynamic markets, the regulatory power of states and democracies and embed in them universal standards, the universal uh, uh, human rights standards, sustainability standards and that, we don't, I think, have good enough answers for at this time.
0: Right. Let's open it to the floor <laughs> then and get your views. And I'm going to take questions in bunches of threes. So, um, who would like to ask a question? Yes, that here and then here. Mm-hmm. This gentleman here and then here. Have you got a microphone? I, yeah. no, 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 he'll give you a microphone. that is being...
4: Yeah. My question to the panel as a whole, uh, John Glittle, the Department of Government. How can we reconcile seemingly contradictory global agendas? So we've talked about the need for, to deal with underdevelopment, the need to deal with the bottom billion, but also the need to deal with global climate change. The problem is that we can't really deal with another billion people that live the way that we do. So how can we reconcile these seemingly contradictory agendas?
0: Okay, great. The gentlemen. there but the back, m- behind you. Yeah, The,
5: the, the point is about um, international fran- financial regulation and the difficulty of achieving it. And the point that Joseph Stieglitz made last week, and he's making it continually, uh, that basically you can't, uh, there doesn't seem to be much chance of achieving international agreement. We've obviously got a much weakened President of the United States, probably even weaker after the first Tuesday in November. Um, And he's basically saying, look, every nation should do its own thing and that should be it. There should be national building blocks, in other words, which seems to be almost uh, in the hope that ultimately by nations doing their own thing in terms of financial regulation, you'll get there. And then coming back to Robert Zollick's point about the G20, you know, that that the G78 are obviously too small, but the G20 is too big to be effective. And then you've got the crisis in Europe with basically emerging nationalism, the Germans... Uh, basically, a lot of them wanting the Greece out of the Eurozone.
0: Yeah, that's a very good, actually, very good pair of questions. So, what, yeah, we'll take this one here and then there's the third one and then we'll come back. Uh,
3: good evening. Uh, when we say that market fundamentalism is good because it uh, produces innovation, we make kind of like an inherent, insup- inherent assumption that innovations are always. Uh, positive and productive, but um, how can we stop or detect innovations
1: that are bad? Thank you.
0: Okay, so there's a small technical question there, or a big technical question there. For, for like, let's but let's go back then to this discussion, which was questions focused on. And Danny, can I turn to you first, this thing about the relationship between national interests and collective decision-making, whether the national interests will overturn always the global public good?
3: Um, I, I think the, the quick answer, Henrietta, is yes, the question it must be. and In fact, that's the reason we're here, to try and devise or consider alternative ways beyond just letting national interests run rampant mm. in an international arena. Mm. But if I may, can I also quickly provide my yes. answers to mm. two, the two other questions? One was, how do we reconcile um, you know, the bottom billions' aspirations, which are already coming to fruition, which are, they're already realizing whether the rest of the world agrees to or not. The bottom billion will rise. How do you reconcile that with the, the demands on what seems to be a finite world, and in particular, the very tight demands from global climate change. Now, my my quick five-second answer to that is the same answer that all of human history has provided. Every time we've come into contradictions or tensions like that, we've had to fall back on technology, we've had to fall back on improvements in technology. And here, we do need to allow the creativity of human entrepreneurs seeing Economic incentives to drive forward the development of new technologies, and I believe that that will happen. Tom Friedman describes scenarios for how U.S. investors and investors elsewhere, if the U.S. does not step up to the plate to carry forward this idea, this actually cuts back now to the third question, which is that you know many of the the panel seems to have the idea that market fundamentalism creates innovation or drives innovation. And I think we do have that idea because that's what human history has shown creative destruction, things that allow the the obsolescence of things that no longer work and be replaced with things that do work. How do we stop or detect bad innovations? The quick answer is that we, we cannot. Just as a configuration of molecules can either provide pharmaceuticals that will save the lives of hundreds of millions of people in Africa, but the same molecules, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen can simply be a debilitating drug that saps the spirit. Of millions of Americans, how do we prevent one and not the other? <laughs> we can't. We have to let markets and enlightened governments take up the, that role. Mary, creative destruction.
1: Yeah. Well, I actually I think all these questions are actually interconnected, as <laughs> at like Hydra-headed crisis. <laughs> <laughs> First, on national interest. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think we've got to change mindsets and understand that in in the end, in an interdependent world, national interest actually can only be pursued through multilateral global arrangements. The Scandinavian countries or the Benelux countries have recognised that for a very long time. They recognised they were too small to protect themselves and they're, they're going to be safer in a safer world or richer in a richer world but somehow we're still stuck with old fashioned ideas in countries like Britain and the United States. so, So part of it is changing mindsets. On the question of the contradictions I agree with Danny but I'd go one step further. I think that actually the energy intensive model of development is exhausted in an economic sense. In that it's become harder and harder to achieve productivity increases which will produce sustainable growth. And in fact, the only way we can generate the kind of growth in an economic sense, not only in an environmental sense, is by creating a radical new technological change that will allow us once again to achieve productivity. So actually, I think, a low carbon future based on information technologies and all the new discoveries we've made which are phenomenal in their potential for productivity increase is the only way economic growth is going to be sustainable in an economic sense. And that relates to innovations because I think there's been huge innovations over the last few decades especially in information technology but not only in information technology but because of the institutional and cultural legacies, they've been directed towards ever more elaborate consumer goods, ever more elaborate weapon systems, instead of the huge potential they offer for protecting the environment, for addressing poverty, and so on. So This is really an issue, and and, and your question is very good. This is really an issue about how are we going to change the institutional framework because then I think markets will take
0: off in a positive direction. Is going to be changing the institutional framework enough, Tony?
4: Uh, Well, I mean, I'd just like to... All the questions are a bit the same as Mary said. Mm. The situation, I think, with development on climate change is the following really, that is poorer countries must have the right to develop. They must have the right to become richer. But at the same time, you can't for more than probably another ten years maybe follow the same model of development as we've had in the past. Therefore we are dependent on making transformations. And to me this applies both to the large developing economies and to the industrialised world. So I think we, within the large developing economies, I think the leadership, certainly in China, is already aware that it can't simply track the same model of development as the West has followed. Hence, has a very strong interest in finding an alternative model of development. And I think we will find one. I don't think it will just be technology, because I think in many cases you might get an interesting new mixture of high-tech and low-tech developing. For example, you know, say you're in India, you know, you've got a a community which has functioning quite well, quite strong. You don't necessarily want to have supermarkets that eviscerate that community. You don't necessarily want to succumb to the rule of the motor car. There are all sorts of ways of envisaging a sort of positive m- model of transitional development to me, which could maximise political value. And the same thing applies, you know, in a different way in the industrial countries. I think we are at the end of the period when GDP actually can measure welfare. You know, the work of so many economists has shown that, that GDP maximisation can actually subvert welfare. It doesn't make sense to go on with that kind of model. It does make sense to have a critique of um, a sort of naked growth model of development in our kind of society. We see everywhere our way of life, to some extent, subverting itself. Consider the motor car, for example, was originally an instrument of freedom and mobility. Well, it's not that. If you're stuck in a city centre all the time in the cars, in a gridlock. You have to look for a new kind of system. In John Arie's book, which we've discussed in Policy Network as well as in the LSE, really interesting ideas, his book Beyond the Car, that you get new kinds of tram- transportation systems that are, again, integration of the old and the new, because you might get a return to more people cycling. It's a good thing. More people walking. It's a good thing. You could have a smart card system which uh, has a new kind of relationship between what's public and private. And you know those things are not solely utopian. I like to, th- you know, I think we do need a certain revival of utopianism because we need to think beyond our existing economy and society. A low-carbon economy will not be like our economy now, just with low-carbon technology. That's ridiculous. You're talking some sort of revolution here, I think. So uh, I think we need naturally what I call utopian realism, at <laughs> utopianism,
1: right. okay. but it
4: has to be linked to real paths of socio-economic development, which we can chart out. I, you know it sounds contradictory but I think the one can feed off the other
0: David utopian realism
4: Oh, well, well, he doesn't say. have to use that or respond to
0: that well, does he does it covers know. all bases <laughs> <laughs> I
2: mean utopian realism covers all bases so you know one would be in favour of it but, but let me just uh, um, come back to John Gledhill's. I don't, I don't think we've addressed John Gledhill's question about how do you reconcile contradictory agendas and I would just like to take 30 seconds to do so I mean, in in nation states, you address contradictory uh, uh, agendas through democratic politics, which brings the contradictions to a temporary halt or creates a synthesis of politics in the electoral cycle. At the global level, when you have a frozen power structure built into your institutions, then the contradictory agendas are reconciled by power. Um, Do contradictory agendas at the global level always have to be reconciled by power? Well, I am probably uh, uh, in this panel uh, you know, one of the, certainly someone who is more of a utopian than a realist and firmly of the view that you can have and should aim for a kind of democratic global governance and my work has tried to expound the principles and institutional structures of this for a long time But I, so I take issue with the view that national interests will always trump the human interest or global interests or wider questions because I think that's only true when institutions are weak and how do you make institutions stronger? Well, to come back to what I said earlier, they have to meet two tasks. They have to be representative, and they have to have independent means to finance their programs. So I'm firmly committed to the idea of a financial transaction tax, some kind of modified Tobin tax, and to a carbon tax rather than to the idea of carbon markets because they potentially provide international institutions or whatever we call them with the means to address issues of global goods and bads independently of the priorities of individual states. And once you have that break, once you have that moment, Then policy can be developed to some extent independent of the individual players. But whilst global governance is unrepresentative and locked into the funding structures of powerful countries, how do you reconcile contradictory agendas? Well, always then by power.
0: All right, let's take some more questions just here and here. So, right over on this side.
3: I would like to have your view about citizens how do you connect citizens to global governance because being a practitioner in my experience citizens don't care about this dimension while citizens can actually be the source of solution being voters and consumers but they have to be active citizenship and in this sense they should challenge what I would call the framework, uh, sorry, the uh, representative democracy mindset, where you delegate responsibility to the others, while we have examples that concretely uh, works, like fair trade. So in the fair trade you don't ask government to make more regulation, or corporations to do the right thing, you just buy the right coffee.
0: Okay, good question. This one here behind me, please. And
4: then you there, yes, in the blue. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, slightly different topic to the previous question. But running with the argument that uh, the post war settlement is insufficient for coping with the changes that have occurred over the last 60 years, how do you envisage that, um, a new settlement to reflect those changes? Uh, how could you build in uh, the capability for it to adapt to changes over the next 50 years so that we're not in this situation again? in 2050
3: or
0: so. And and this
3: question here. here. Yeah, I have a question (laughs) on Europe. Um, Do you think Europe has squandered its only uh, opportunity to become one of the global leaders by producing such a messy treaty as the Lisbon Treaty, and keeping in mind that there is is little prospect on a new institutional treaty uh, for the coming decade?
0: Okay, well, let's start with those three then. Mary do you have something to say about citizens? I do yeah. yes <laughs> um, I
1: think of course the interesting thing about government, the, the shift from national government to global governance is also the shift from government to governance which means it's less about top down directives and more about a sort of more nebulous form of steering. And in that situation, I think citizens do have a greater role. I think what's happened, part of the story that we're telling about the democratic deficit is a story about the way in which uh, citizens, civil society groups have found themselves blocked at national levels by old fashioned political parties that have turned into electoral machines. Mm. And very often, it doesn't mean that citizens activism has gone away, but it's been channeled in different directions, either locally, up through fair trade, political consumerism, through internet, but also through all kinds of transnational and global networking. Even in the smallest villages you often find people who are engaged in some kind of links and who see the way to change their situation to be addressing not their national governments but the World Bank or whoever. And I think while we are painting a very depressing story about the lack of accountability of global governance, it is the case that citizens have, the differences that we've seen have been brought about by citizens' action, whether it's the concern about climate change, whether it's the International Criminal Court, whether it's the treaties on landmines and cluster munitions, the really significant innovations in global governance have come about through citizens' action. And that's incredibly important. And I think what's important in all of that is not so much thinking about, you know, governments have a tendency to say, oh, we must help them have c- civil society. Actually, what's important is that we try to foster channels of communication and deliberations. Where citizens' action is valued, and that very much relates to the point about how to ensure we don't have rigid institutions in the future. Yes. And the problem with political institutions <coughs> is that you change them either through democratic means or through crises, war, yes. and financial crises. And um, you know, even democratic countries tend to be conservative, especially and conservative with a small C, especially given what's happened to political parties. But you do find smaller countries like the Scandinavian countries are much more adaptable and responsive, partly because they are more democratic and more adaptable and have more of a debate going on. So I think democracy channels for civic communications are absolutely key in creating mechanisms to overcome the rigidity of government institutions. And finally, on the EU, I despair like you. I was so longing for a strong and effective EU, and this has turned into a terrible fiasco. But one of the things that really does worry me is that I think there's been a huge loss of public support for the EU. I think what we've forgotten about is the EU's purpose. I mean... The EU's always been a peace project and it had momentum after the the Second World War because nobody wanted another European Civil War. And so we needed an institution to prevent that. And then it had another (coughs) momentum after the end of the Cold War because we wanted to overcome the Cold War. But now, certainly for the younger generations, the EU, in the end, what we got at the end of the Cold War was a compromise between Europeanism and the market. Mrs Thatcher agreed to Europe as long as it was a neoliberal Europe and it expanded the market and I think one of the problems is that young people are very disenchanted by the EU because they see it no longer as a peace project but as a neoliberal project Mm. and I think that's what's got to shift. I think we, we need a public momentum but we've got to show that Europe does have a real role in addressing climate change, peace, the issues that people are really concerned about. And that also requires, this is David's, I think, the EU needs its own method of financing. It needs to be, you know, we need to bail out Greece, actually, uh, and we need to find resources through which whether it's uh, a better policy on the part of the European Central Bank, whether it's a uh, raising euro bonds, which is one current idea, which I think is quite a good idea, or whether it's having a carbon, a, an EU-wide carbon tax, an EU-wide Tobin tax. We just need new source, independent sources of finance for the European Union.
0: Mm. Danny, can I go turn to you and see what what your view is about the regulation of markets, thinking about individuals more as citizens and perhaps less as consumers.
3: Yeah, the well, the, this is the question that relates to how we map. Citizen interests and citizen in addition, actions to, to a answer. system of global governance. Mm-hmm. I think of this problem as being the same problem, but writ large, of trying to mobilize citizens in a fractured society where national policy needs to be made. So, most recently, I've had experience with one small economy in the world where that economy faces a historical legacy of. Ethnic discrimination, ethnic based discrimination, where the government is wholeheartedly attempting to move towards a system where econ- the economy can function more efficiently, merit based rewards can be more easily dispensed, incentives can be more freely provided to the progressive elements of economic activity in that society. How do we mobilize the citizens in that fractured society the same way that we might mobilize citizens, anonymous six and a half billion citizens in a met system of global governance? You move by, you try and mobilize everyone to make sure that it is clear the moves that you are interested in, the policy actions that you are gonna take, will benefit everyone in an inclusive way. You have to try and engage in a big push that excites the citizens that this move to a system of more enlightened global governance will be a move that benefits them will be a move that benefits each individual when you don't have that when you have the kinds of tensions that come from contradictions in the different directions that you want to move then the situation is obviously a lot more difficult but that is the path that i believe that you need to take respecting individual determination, together with the need for an overall overarching method of governance. This actually then touches on the the second question about a new international settlement that we might imagine. I can't imagine the entire outline at this point. However, I can see the tensions that would Follow if we transcribe the principal outlines of what we currently have to a system where we simply take into account different memberships of the leaders in that society, in that global society. One of the principal sticking points in the global economy now is, as Mary has pointed out, the status of the U.S. dollar as world's reserve currency, a situation where the political powerful are the world's largest debtors, the politically not so powerful, are the world's largest creditors. Because of this configuration, the world's reserve currency, the world's principal currency, is unable to serve its usual function in the global marketplace of equilibrating, of allowing these imbalances to work their way through. Now, that system that I've just described has nothing to do with the identity of the world's reserve currency. It's simply any global system where you have a strong leadership where that leadership then becomes the sticking point. The move away from that, however, leads to the fear that the global system will become unstable, that exchange rates will become unstable without the anchor of a world's reserve currency. These tensions will remain in any logical system that we try to design from the ground up going forwards. I don't know what the outlines of a a superior system would be, but I know that the current system has fractures that make it Economically infeasible in the medium to long run. Yeah.
0: I'm afraid that we are running out of time, but I'd like to have last words from, from Tony and from David. Which is a to conclude, Tony, first of all, you want to respond on the EU or any uh, other? Well, matters? you know,
4: the world, I, you know, social and economic life to me proceeds dialectically. So at the moment you have a kind of fragmentation occurring, but it could easily produce its opposite. We have to try to do that. You can see important initiatives in the world society. We haven't talked about nuclear proliferation, but I think you know, President Obama is making a massive intervention uh, with the idea of significantly reducing nuclear weapons and moving ultimately towards a world where those weapons are largely excluded from um, immediate um, uh, control by any nation. But if we could set up a nuclear bank it will make an enormous difference because then you could have a peaceful expansion of nuclear power which you can't really have at the moment. You see interesting trends and counter-trends there but I'm afraid, you know, this is a world where you could have disaster and where if we can't manage these things, the disasters could be cataclysmic and only a disaster would drive change. That's exactly what we don't want to happen but I don't think it's at all an open sharp case and we're in a big, big, big process of transition so it's not surprising that we can't kind of grasp it, can't deal with it. We're all trying to think about it. Um, I think you know, this, this is much bigger transition even than the original Industrial Revolution because it's a, a global set of
2: transitions. So we're struggling with it.
0: Mm. David, we're struggling.
2: Well, I, I, in this instance I agree with all the last three <laughs> responses to the questions <laughs> almost entirely. Uh, I, I just add just uh, one thing. From, from Plato to, to Robert Dahl, thinkers of power have generally thought that that citizens are not capable of engaging in questions beyond their immediate concerns. (laughs) And yet one of the things we see in the EU and elsewhere is you can be a citizen of Glasgow and vote in those elections, the same person can vote in the Scottish elections, the same person can vote in the UK elections, the same person can vote in in the European elections. That's four overlapping forms of membership in political communities that people already have in Europe and if that's not enough they can join precisely in social and sectoral specific movements from Oxfam to Save the Children to uh, environmental movements and so on to mobilize around particular global issues and that people do in in abundance. Um, The problem is that of course that people tend to be committed to issues in the longer term and committed to politics in the longer term. We know this from a lot of empirical studies. The more they feel their input counts. The more they feel their input has efficacy and bites. And one of the problems is with the EU is it has a very substantial, as we've agreed, democratic deficit. And the last treaty did nothing really to resolve that. Just consider the issue of the EU presidency. In the end, the issue of the EU presidency was resolved by a stitch-up between the big powers of Europe. So many of you would find it perhaps difficult to name who the EU president actually is. No wonder people don't feel connected to the new EU president and the people around the new EU president. But if that post had been democratically contested, if there had been for that simple post and the key posts around it a democratic competition, then choice would have mattered and people's input into that process would have mattered. So to come to a person who asked the question, did the EU squander a critical moment? I think the EU did squander critical moment. And to the extent that the EU is actually led by the two big powers of Europe with others on the side, then I think a moment of squandering will continue into the future. I think the answer to this is twofold. One is more democracy and the other is more independent flows of resources, as I've already said about global governance, but I'd also say about Europe. But I have to recognise that whilst I do have an answer to most of these questions... Most people do not agree with me.
0: <laughs> so I'm afraid we are out of time. We've arrived at the, at the end of all the inputs we can make for this evening. I don't think we've squandered any of our time. I think we've done remarkably well. And so I'd just like to thank David Held, Mary Caldor, Danny Quire, Tony Giddens for their contribution. And Henrietta Win... Moore
4: for her contribution. And
0: <laughs> will you join with me in celebrating the relaunch of LSE Global Governance? Thank you. <laughs>